Noong taong ba'y ay nagdurusa Bayan di ka manaawa Katanungan mo'y kinukutiya Bayan di ka manangangamba Kalayaan mo'y nakataya Labis kong minumutia Lupa ng pagpasa at pagsinta Din niligdugong nagkaisa Ng mga mayaring mayroong adhika Bakit sukat mong hinayaan Ang tungkuling dapat kang That was Huling Pagsama, or Last Plea, by the Filipino folk guitarist, composer, and conductor Michael Dada. He composed this song in 1970 before martial law was declared by the late Philippine fascist dictator Ferdinand Marcos. On September 21, 1972, Marcos declared martial law over the entire Philippines, forever changing our country's history. Today, September 21, marks the 48th anniversary of Marcos's declaration of martial law. And we have a special podcast episode highlighting the transnational activism of Filipinos in fighting the dictatorship, as well as firsthand testimonies of activists and cultural workers who spent their youth resisting Marcos's tyranny. Based on a recent webinar that the Malaya Movement Northeast put out, today's episode features a snapshot history of transnational activism against the Marcos dictatorship. This history is given by Professor Mark Sanchez of Harvard University and Professor Karen Hanna of Connecticut College. These are followed by testimonies by human rights activist Ramon Mapala, formerly a member of the militant youth organization Kapatan Makabayan in the Philippines, and a martial law political prisoner. Jaime Gallega, formerly a member of the U.S.-based organization Union of Democratic Filipinos, or KDP. Guitarist and composer Michael Dada. Cultural worker, activist, and formal political prisoner Otri Rankamanis the Moro Indigenous Cultural Bearer, and current head of the dance theater company, Kinding Sindao. Writer, journalist, poet, and professor, Luis Francia. Martial law cultural activist, Angela Jing Mascarenas, co-founder of the theater and education organization, Circa Pintig. We invite you to sit and internalize this history and first-hand accounts of what it meant to struggle against Marcos during martial law. The Malaya Movement, together with our campaign partners, just this week announced that Representative Susan Wilde of Pennsylvania, together with 19 representatives, have introduced the Philippine Human Rights Act in the U.S. House of Representatives. We take immense inspiration from the activists that came before us and remember that we stand on the shoulders of giants. We will continue to resist President Rodrigo Duterte's ongoing dictatorship in our homeland. We honor those who came before us and sacrificed dearly to end the Marcos dictatorship. Never again to martial law. 
Never again, never forget. As the chant popularized during Marcus's regime goes, Makibaka Wagmataka, join the struggle, do not be afraid. To introduce ourselves as the MCs, um, my name is Bernadette. I'm the uh, Malaya Movement Northeast Regional Coordinator for here in the Northeast. And then I'll let my co-MC introduce themselves. My name is Julius. I'm a member of the Malaya Movement based in New Jersey. For this first part, we'll have two folks speak on the background and history of martial law and resistance. First up, we have Mark John Sanchez, a history and literature professor at Harvard University. Mark teaches in history and literature at Harvard and teaches courses on U.S. empire, human rights, and ethnic studies. He is currently working on a book on um, the making of a transnational opposition to Marcos and martial law. And today, Mark will be sharing a background in history of martial law and resistance in the Philippines. So I'll hand the mic to you, Mark. We are so privileged this evening to have activists sharing their memories of the Marcos dictatorship, uh, both from the United States and the Philippines. I'm just going to give a short background for those of us that might have only recently heard of martial law and Marcos. What we call martial law, uh, the martial law period under Marcos, officially covers nine years, from 1972 to 1981. However, Ferdinand Marcos ruled over the Philippines for over two decades, from 1965 until he was overthrown in the EDSA Revolution of 1986. He won presidential elections in 1965 and 1969, with the 1969 election uh, being famously known as having been the most corrupt and violent election to that date. By 1970, and perhaps even before, he began toying around with ideas about how to remain in power, because the Constitution of the Philippines at that time only had a two-term limit. During his second term, there were already a lot of protests against him. Filipinos were frustrated with the economic situation in the Philippines, the ways that the Philippines was helping serve U.S. interests in Vietnam, tuition fee hikes in schools and universities, rising inequality throughout the Philippines, as well as the looming possibility that Marcos would not let go of power. The most well-known segments of these early protests are the first quarter storm of 1970 and the Diliman Commune of February 1971. These were remarkable, often youth-led protests against the creeping authoritarianism of Marcos. And we're going to hear more about that from some of our speakers. Marcos eventually uses a, a series of attacks on his allies, purported threats on his life, and the uh, Cold War arguments about the rise of a communist threat to suspend the writ of habeas corpus in 1971. What this means was that people could be arrested and held indefinitely without the presentation of evidence or even a specific charge. Then, in September 1972, he used protests and as well as these reasons to declare uh, martial law. Marcos' allies took control of the press, uh, major agricultural industries, and public utilities. Marcos' political detractors were arrested. Some would be held in solitary confinement. Others were tortured or disappeared. Our best estimate is that there were 3,000 extrajudicial killings 35,000 people tortured, and over 70,000 people arrested under Marcos. Torture as a tactic became such a common feature of the period 
that the term salvaged became common nomenclature in the Philippines in reference to torture. Many Marcos opponents were either imprisoned, forced abroad, or driven underground. Curfews were implemented. University campuses, seen by Marcos to be the hotbed of dissent, had undercover military and police attending classes to infiltrate opposition groups. Despite these attacks on civil liberties, activists continued organizing in really amazing ways. They built human rights organizations, coordinated labor union efforts, uh, built mutual aid organizations, um, conducted legal trainings so that people would be able to document government abuses. Activists underground also worked to challenge the authority of the regime. Uh, they worked to serve poor folks and indigenous communities, as well as organize solidarity efforts with people all over the world. They faced unspeakable dangers and made incredible sacrifices in opposing the regime. For much of the rest of the 1970s, the power of the Marcos government continued to grow. Marcos instituted what he called the New Society Reforms, which basically legally instituted authoritarianism in the Philippines because of the idea that the nation needed discipline in order to develop. The Marcos government had also obtained billions of dollars, either in the form of military aid from the United States or in the form of loans from the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. While some of these funds did go to infrastructural development, Many more of these funds went to the pockets of the Marcos family and his allies. So strong was their hold on the Philippine state that by the time he was forced from office in 1986, Imelda Marcos, his wife, had held offices such as governor of Metro Manila and member of the Philippine parliament. Daughter, Aimee Marcos, had served as assemblywoman for Ilocos Norte and son, Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr., was vice governor and then governor of Ilocos North. Despite, and I think because of the Marcos's power, activists in the Philippines and all over the world mounted an impressive opposition to the dictatorship. The EDSA revolution of 1986 was a remarkable moment when people came out in the hundreds of thousands to protest and finally force Marcos from power. But even before 1986, people were doing the work. They were fighting against the dictatorship and trying to build a better Philippines. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Hannah, will now uh, talk a little bit about uh, another important facet of this fight, um, opposition to martial law that came from the U.S. Thank you, Mark. I want to thank Bernadette and Mark for inviting me. I have so much respect for all of the activists present and thank them for being with us today. As Marx stated, the opposition movement wasn't contained to the Philippines, it was transnational and it extended all over the world, including not just the United States, but also Canada, the Netherlands, Hong Kong, Japan, as well as other countries. The first formations in the US were initiated by some of the politically exiled activists that Mark referred to. They moved here in the late 60s and early 70s, even before Marcos declared martial law. On the West Coast, the exiles teamed up with the children of farm and cannery workers, who we know today as the Manongs. Their children, many of whom were college age at the time, had already been politicized by the anti-Vietnam War, civil rights, Chicano and Black power movements, and a rising embrace of Filipino identity in which many were, for the first time, taking pride in being Filipino. 
On the East Coast and Midwest, the demographics were different. Here, the Filipino community consisted of primarily new immigrants, the product of the recent passing of the 1965 Immigration Act, which focused on professional labor. So exiles in cities like New York City and Chicago thus primarily joined white allies, as well as Philippine nationals who hadn't been activists before, but were concerned about family members who still lived in the Philippines. The anti-Marcos movement in the U.S. was ideologically and politically diverse, and its various formations immediately sprung to action when Marcos declared martial law in 1972. And for the sake of time, I want to just lay out several of the groups which are not comprehensive, but should give you a feel for the overall movement. The first, probably most popularly remembered, was called the Movement for Free Philippines, or MFP. It was led by several exiled government officials and politicians from the Philippines, including the later assassinated Ninoy Aquino. The MFP was active in lobbying to cut U.S. military aid to the Philippines. It pushed for the release of political prisoners, ultimately aiming to oust Marcos. For many, however, the MFP represented the moderate and anti-communist politics of what they called elite democracy. To them, the MFP wished to reinstate power for the few families that held immense wealth and power prior to Marcos. They saw the need to consolidate a left that sought to both oust Marcos and end U.S. imperialism and the rule of large-scale landlords and compradors in the Philippines. So the left itself was actually very diverse, with some formations outliving others or shifting into new ones. One of the groups was called the National Committee for the Restoration of Civil Liberties in the Philippines. It was otherwise known as NCRCLP and was formed in 1972. It was started by a group of radical Philams and Philippine nationals and was the first national organization in the U.S. to oppose martial law. A year later, almost all of its chapters were streamlined into one militant cadre-based national organization called the KDP. Now, the KDP was comprised of a mix of Philams, Philippine nationals, and allies of other ethnic and racial groups. It took a dual-line approach, which one, promoted socialism in the U.S., while two, supported the Philippine Revolution abroad. Of its many campaigns, it led the formation of a broader anti-martial law coalition, which educated the American public about the situation in the Philippines. The KDP wrote and toured radical theater productions, had its own newspaper, and leafleted information to Filipinos at churches and grocery stores, among its many, many other activities. And Jaime Gallaga will be joining us later as a member of the KDP and will be able to share some of its rich work with you. And for a lot of the 1970s, KDP worked with the Friends of the Filipino People or the FFP to pressure the US government to end military and economic aid to the Philippines. It also advocated for the US government to withdraw military bases in the Philippines. The FFP was comprised mainly of white, East Coast, anti-war, and church-affiliated Americans who joined with some Filipinos. Now, given their positionality as mainly Americans, one of the FFP's guiding principles was that it would not take a stance on the political future of the Philippines. And lastly, Samahang Makabayan Filipino, or SAMAPI, was a local solidarity group formed in Chicago in 1978. It opposed Marcos's human rights violations, as well as U.S. intervention in the Philippines. 
Around 1981, Samapi became a new group called Philippine Forum, hoping to broaden support by focusing on anti-interventionism and anti-fascism and dropping the anti-imperialism. Jing Mascareñas, who will be later joining us, was active in Philippine Forum's cultural arm. So in short, active in the movement were students, were artists, were professors, were priests, other uh, church leaders, health professionals, attorneys, labor organizers, and other working people who were working full-time while also being organizers. They mobilized thousands of Americans against Marcos, and I look forward to hearing stories shared from some of them today. And it's my pleasure now to introduce Professor Luis Francia, writer, poet, journalist. Um, he began to write poetry in workshops with the famed Filipino writer Jose Garcia Villa at the New School. His collections include the Arctic Archipelago, a museum of absences, the beauty of ghosts, and the tattered boat. Um, his memoir, The Eye of the Fish, Personal Archipelago, won a Penn Open Book Award and an Asian American Literary Award. Um, he has published numerous works in nonfiction, including A History of the Philippines from Indios Bravos to Filipinos. And he also writes an online column for the Philippine Daily Inquirer. And he curr currently resides in Queens, New York. Without remembrance, um, history will be lost. Mention was made earlier by Mark of salvaging, the term salvaging. And one of the more famous poets of the martial law era was a poet by the name of Emmanuel Lacaba. He was a good friend, um, but, you know, I left for North America before Marshall was declared, and I later found out. He joined the underground, became a guerrilla with the New People's Army in 1974, um, and he was murdered by, the, by an informer uh, within the NPA. He was murdered in 1976, when he was but 27 years old, uh, so the word salvaging needs to be explained a bit. Uh, of course, the normal meaning of salvage is to rescue something from ruin. You know, it's really a, an act of maritime uh, rescue of ships that have been, that have foundered. In the context of martial law, salvaging meant the opposite. It meant the extrajudicial killing of people, whether activists or innocent bystanders or guerrillas um, by vigilantes, the same way that they are being killed today, or by the military or by the police. So the um, family of Amon, as we called him, um, came up with two collections of his poetry and prose, and they were both titled Salvage, the poetry was called Salvage Poems. Um, if you can see, this is a collection of his salvage poems. And his prose works were, of course, titled Salvage Prose. So it's perfect timing because when um, I was contacted and asked if I would wanted to read something, I had been working on translations because Eman was bilingual. He wrote a lot in English, but he also wrote in Tagalog. 
and I've been translating some of the later poems that he penned while he was a guerrilla and he had been assigned to Mindanao. So the one, one of the poems that I've translated recently is in Tagalog, it's called Kung Akoi Mamatay, which means when I die. Okay, so let me read that. If I should die, if I should die, so many, it is true, will weep, not just kin, but friends in the city left behind, former schoolmates, fellow workers, and intellectuals fond of poetry, and most especially the farmers and laborers who confessed their lives' bitter stories to me. Indeed, I would be delighted should they all attend my wake and burial, if they fill the whole road on the final march of my casket, wrapped in a red flag with hammer and sickle or three stars, especially if they begin to wonder, for whom, why did he die? No matter, it is all the same to me, should I perish in the forest, there to be buried by worm and weed, with no marker, no name, enough that the masses I love rise up, wreck the rock that suffocates us, create a society of light, yes, and from within, light will glow, should I die. So I hope to be able to translate all of the Tagalog poems in this uh, collection, you know, through the year. So I'll end by reading one of my own works. Um, it's a poem that comments, it's a part of a series of poems that deal with the Duterte's drug wars. Um, I started the, uh, the, the series in 2017 when I was in Manila teaching for a semester at the Ateneo. <clears throat> and this particular poem is called Gethsemane in Manila. Um, for those of you who may not know, Gethsemane was the place where Christ is apprehended and taken to be crucified. Gethsemane in Manila. In the garden of get me some money, frolic the tycoons and their triggermen amidst paths thrown with their 30 pieces of silver. Their guests giggle, their girls glitter, their guns bejeweled sparkle. What was once red is now black. In the garden of get me some money, a rose in bloom is a miracle, like a gazelle in a cage of hyenas. In the garden of get me some money, the poor hang as rotting fruit from skeletal trees. By whose hands was their flesh commanded? In the garden of get me some money, you and I put on our designer's crowns with thorns that draw not blood, for blood has betrayed us and fled. So are we now pale copies of ourselves. Adonai Elohim, Adonai Elohim. In the name of the Godfather Aswang, and of the tattooed son, Manananggal, and of the hoodlum ghost, Multo. Bless us, Bosings, for the gift of gutting, the gift of getting, the gift of forgetting, 
forgiving the unforgiven poor, their kingdom of the earth, all six feet of it. Bless us, Bosings, for all these gifts which we are about to receive from the bounty hunters through cash, our Lord. Amen. Salamat po. Um, you know, it's exactly like what you say, with without remembrance, history is lost. And um, it's with that that we should also emphasize how painful these histories are. And with that, um, we want to issue a trigger warning. Um, some of the testimonies may be difficult to hear on torture and imprisonment. So take the time and space you need um, when, when as, they, as they're expanded on by our speakers. Uh, the first of which we have uh, for the testimony section is Ramon Mabala, uh, who is a human rights activist, film and TV producer, and former political prisoner. Um, he will be speaking on his experience organizing during martial law and the student movement and the need, and the need to continue the struggle against Duterte. Ramon. You have to unmute Ramon. 1967-68 were the formation of the uh, new um, Communist Party and uh, the New People's Army. There was no uh, NDF yet at that time. So the uh, I was asked to uh, uh, talk about the first quarter storm. So the first quarter storm started during the 67, 68. And um, I joined the uh, movement for national democracy during 1972, actually. 71, I graduated high school here in Iowa. And then I went back and went to UP. And uh, when I was in UP, I got involved with student organizing. I was with the uh, Sandigan Makabansa, and um, we were we reorganized. The whole movement reorganized because the former uh, or the old PKP and the old youth movement, the MPKP, was uh, already being changed. Um, the new Kabatang Makabayan, which was uh, chaired by Jose Maria Season. And of course, uh, the founders as a founding member of the CPP at that time, 67. So I, I want to talk about the 72. So I, I, I didn't prepare anything. So I'm going to try to speak from memory and from the heart. When I joined, there were, we call it sectoral formations. The Movement for Democratic Philippines is the... Uh, the forefront, the father or the original um, uh, NDF at that time. Anything or anybody who was against martial law, anything or anybody against Marcos was considered a subversive. That's the brand they used. Now they have a new ter terrorist. The formations, it was a mass movement composed of the youth, the laborers, the workers, the professionals, the teachers, and government workers, and uh, the peasants, of course. It was massive in terms of, in terms of scope, in terms of uh, geography. 
like different branches, different organizations from the different regions. And then if you break up the regions, there are provincials. And then from provinces goes to uh, the universities. Usually the universities there then was uh, the, most of their centers and most activities happened there because most of the largest active organization then was the Kabataan Makabayan. So I was a member of. And then, of course, the Samahang Democratic Kabataan, which is also a youth group, but uh, it has a different set of infrastructure. It went on, the killings, the arrest, the abductions, the disappearances of all the opposition members, all, not only political, but even religious. Uh, I have some friends inside the uh, detention center were from Iglesia Ni Cristo. And mayors, uh, professionals, etc., etc. So the whole scope of the first quarter storm happened during that time. And, and that time until it culminated to the declaration of martial law. I was arrested about six or seven days before it was officially declared, and uh, there was a sweep of all the opposition. So I was uh, brought into three different camps, uh, Camp Dangwa, or Camp Holmes, now called Ta Camp Dangwa, Camp Aquino, and then Camp Olivas, where I was really. There I saw thousands of activists, thousands of uh, political prisoners. Some of them I know personally, some of them I don't. They come from all over northern Luzon. I met them in uh, Camp Aquino and Camp Olivas. When martial law was declared, the movement developed or, or worked uh, a very vibrant underground structure. There were organizations were organized, of course, with different names, but same objective, a little bit layered, if you call it that. And then it went on for a few years. But then again, I also moved here to, to the United States. My parents convinced me to go on exile because I only had a very few options left to choose. Either I join my classmates in the, in the mountains or I get arrested again or get killed. So those were the three options. So I had to leave. My dad told me to leave. So. But when I got here, we continued organizing, and I called a few friends I was looking for from Kabataan Mokabayan, and we mounted the lawsuit against Marcos. The case was the human rights violations. It's an international law violation. So we, got, we had to get best lawyers to, to file it for us. We did get one, and it was filed in Hawaii. We won the case. Um, the first case, I'm sorry, the first case, we, uh, it, it was lost and uh, it was resubmitted or re appealed to the regional court here in the United States. And then eventually, after a few years, the case was heard, it was tried in Hawaii. Long story short, the case won. And so there were some sort of indemnifications for 
some of the political prisoners. What is happening in the Philippines, because I just came back also, and personally, my experience there while being stranded from this pandemic was, it's, I would say it's similar, if not worse, from martial law. It was the same. You see military all over the place. They're dictating what you should do. They're punishing people for not wearing masks. They arrest them, they charge them, and they penalize them. But that's just part of it. Where I'm not even touching the part where they have the extrajudicial killings. And they're using the pandemic as a political tool to do what they want and to pass all the laws that uh, the government wants with the Congress and uh, the Supreme Court. And if you do follow, it's the same pattern that Marcos did before, you know, uh, silencing the media, arresting, killing all the uh, opposition members, seizing properties and businesses from other industrialists and putting their relatives in power, building their own oligarchy. I'm talking about Duterte right now, changing the actual composition or the system of government. When Marcos changed it to parliamentary, it didn't work. When Marcos was ousted, we went back to the same democratic government. Um, now, uh, I think Duterte is, uh, is pushing for federalism. And uh, he's hell-bent in, in, in doing and in keeping himself in power. Thank you, Kuyaman, for all of your sharings, from reflecting um, and telling us about your um, work as a youth and student activist against Marcos, the difficult decisions that you had to make, and interweaving this with what's happening currently now under Duterte. I'd like to introduce um, our next speaker, Jaime Gallega, a U.S.-based martial law activist and was a member of the Union of Democratic Filipinos, or KDP. Um, and just to share a brief bio, in the late 60s, he was active in SIPA, or the search to involve Filipino Americans, and then joined the Union of Democratic Filipinos, or KDP, in 1970. As a member of KDP, he helped organize the Filipino American community out in L.A. Um, against the Marcos dictatorship in the Philippines and also organized for social justice against discrimination and racism here in the United States. I, I was born in the Philippines, and w- w- my family and I came over to the U.S. when I was still young in 1965. I was about 11 years old at that time. So growing up in the late 60s, the late 60s was the civil rights movement, the height of the Vietnam War. And and so I grew up in that milieu of social movements, protests. I remember in the mid-60s watching on TV the Watts riots and trying to uh, understand what that meant. I also was witness at that young age about the uh, Black Power Movement, Angela Davis. As a, as a young teenager, in the, in the late 60s, of course, with all of these upheavals or social movements going on, uh, that led me to uh, search more about my identity. So I was swept into, into searching who I was, what is Filipino. That led me to the local organization Search to Involve Filipino Americans and became member of SIPA. I think I also wanted to 
just add a little bit more context to what was going on uh, during that period, the late 60s, early 70s, because by the late 60s, I heard about the national movement in the Philippines, and that caught my attention. What was going on during that period was also the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese people trying to fight for their sovereignty. But not only there, but in Africa, there was the liberation movements going on, Namibia, Zimbabwe, and then in South America, uh, people were rising up for their for their freedom and sovereignty. So what was going on in the Philippines was part of what was going on internationally. And it seemed like all these national liberation movements were really on the verge of overthrowing imperialism. So to me, as a, as a young teenager, you know, late teens, uh, early 20s, the promise for a better society was really there. And so that helped with my own politicization, my trying to understand going beyond L.A. that, you know, because of the anti-war movement, because the civil rights movement, people were, were, were fighting for a better life. What was apparent to me already by seeing the Watts riots in L.A., the disparity, the difference in living standards uh, of the population, that was an exciting exciting a part of my own development and growth. Of course, that's what brought me to the KDP, the Union of Democratic Filipinos. So there were a lot of other people who shared that same vision of a better world. People were reading more history about social movements, you know, the Communist Manifesto. There were, were study groups, not only in LA, but all over the country. People who were who were who were moved to find out more people tried to read and study and understand what imperialism was at that time and why it was the root cause for a lot of the inequities not only in our population but among countries it answered some of the questions why there are third world countries compared to first world countries industrialized countries that's the period of when in my late, my early 20s that I joined KDP. The KDP as an organization also immediately understood that we would support the National Democratic Front in the Philippines as a Filipino organization. That was the national liberation struggle that we had affinity to. We demonstrated solidarity with a lot of other national liberation struggles that was going on at that time. The Philippines was a natural project for the KDP to, to directly support and fight for. The other main uh, objective of the organization was to fight for social justice here in the U.S. It was clear that as U.S. citizens and the community, Filipino community, being part of this, this country, that we had to fight against this discrimination, that objectives, goals, mission of the KDP. We had national campaigns to do to do both. We we had chapters in major cities across the country. In the chapter level, we we teamed up to focus on either the Philippine support work or the the advocacy, the work to fight the Marcos dictatorship. By at that time, uh, while some of some of us uh, 
focused more on fighting discrimination here in the U.S. And one big example of that was the uh, campaign uh, the organization took up to defend the Narciso Perez nurses in Chicago who were blamed for for the murder of a patient. And when we did our research about that case, we knew that they were being scapegoated. And so we took that up, uh, did the lobbying, the mobilization and organization, and we were able to eventually successfully reverse uh, and, and the case against the two nurses were dropped. So there we fought for um, education here in, in California first, that the education had to cover our history of Filipino-American history in the U.S. We also fought for better, uh, a fair licensure for Filipino professionals. Uh, like the nurses, a lot of our Filipino professionals were being discriminated even though they were, we have the same curriculum to get those licenses in the Philippines. Once they come here, uh, these Filipino professionals were required to retake those courses in order to sit for the licensure. So we saw that as unfair. And in fact, really, a lot of our professionals were hired for a cheaper wage <laughs> rather than being certified and, and hired for the rightful uh, job description that they, you know, that they were, were well qualified for. From my own personal experiences, really, the milieu of that period, I thought that imperialism was going to be was going to be uh, defeated because of all these liberation struggles that was going on internationally, uh, and that it was just a matter of time that it would happen. But of course. <laughs> To my dismay and probably a uh, reality check for everybody, uh, the same situation still exists today. I've grown. It's been over 40 years since I was active. I had my idealism as an activism at that time, but my activism today is tempered with my own uh, growth, maturation, my experience, my continuing understanding and learning of uh, what's going on in the world, my continuing understanding of the socialist project that, you know, at one time I believed in, and I still do believe, but I think what's changed in my own perspective is how do we, how do we get that, how do we make that happen? How do we make it a reality, given that we can learn from the attempts of other movements in the past 50 years in trying to achieve equality, social justice in that, uh, in that experiment. In the 80s, I, I became also active in the AIDS, HIV work. I was living in San Francisco at that time. And also, also the period of when I was coming out, accepting my own sexuality, doing education in the Filipino community, against all the misconceptions about that pandemic. I now reside in in Los Angeles where I where I grew up. I moved to to the Bay Area in the late 70s, early 80s to pursue my education and to become a PA while I continued my work in supporting the National Democratic Movement in the Philippines and I still do today try to work against the authoritarian moves of Duterte, D Duterte administration, 
Currently, I'm back in Los Angeles and I'm chairing the uh, Carlos Bulosan Book Club. Bernadette or Julius, I'd like to turn the <laughs> the floor back to you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for your words, Jaime. And especially thank you for being illustrative of the role of overseas compatriots, right? Developing that notion of solidarity internationally is such an incredible part and an incredibly important part of our mission. Because as you said, imperialism is pervasive. Its tentacles go wide. And even though, you know, during the, that time where it seemed like we're about to topple it, it's an incredibly strong beast. But thankfully, we have times like this where we can learn and so that we and we have the opportunity to confront that threat again, we're able to do it in a much stronger way. And in order to help us do that mission, I want to welcome our next speaker, Potriranka Manis, a martial law activist, cultural worker, and political prisoner under the Marcos regime, who will be speaking about her experiences organizing during martial law and as a political prisoner and the role of cultural work and art in people's resistance. Poetry. Um, Assalamu alaikum, magandang gabi. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I will just start with a short uh, call to peace. Audubillah Shaitani Rajim, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So uh, I have a very, very long story because my story will start when I was a child about my experience during martial law, meaning to say I never had a chance to be a child or to be a teenager during the Marcos regime. I came from Mindanao. And my origin is central Mindanao. I came from Lanao. During the time, Lanao was not divided yet. Now, Lanao is Lanao del Norte and Lanao del Sur. This happened during the Marcos regime. That those are tactical to divide and rule. Then I will just jump into the Marcos human rights litigation, reparation money. That was me when I was in prison. I was in 431st PC Company, Philippine Constabulary Company. I was a teenager. I was actually 13 years old. And uh, during the time, uh, there was, it is indiscriminate arrests. There was even a nine-year-old that was arrested and put into prison because they said he was holding, he was holding um, a, a, a gun. I grew up in a, in a remote village. It's actually one of the last sultanate. I came from a culture that is the living tradition of the Maranao indigenous people. So during the time when I was growing, there was no four-wheel drive going to our area. We are self-sustainable people. We don't even need to go to the market. We don't need cash currency because everything is around us. If you want with a tom tomato, moringa, malungay, if you want saluyot, it's just there. If you, it's just there, wild. Even uh, turmeric, it's just wild growing around me. So that kind of childhood, that was short-lived because then the four-wheel drive came in, there were roads that were built, and that was the time when the logging concession came in and start cutting our forests into lumbers. And so on and so forth, after cutting the forests, you know, open pit mining came in. Along the way, that was the time also that of the coming in of United Fruits that took over our land, <clears throat> made our land into banana, 
GMO banana plantations, and also the coming in of dole pineapple in the southern part of, of Mindanao to take over the land of the, the Tiboli people and the Manobo people. So Mindanao is basically supposed to be ancestral land. And settlers came in after it was declared by the U.S. Um, U.S. Census that there's nobody living there because the Dato and the Sultans did not register our land. So that means nobody lives there. So settlers from Luzon and Visayas came. And that was very much used by Marcos. There was the so-called Moro and Christian War, the low-intensity conflict. So, right, like using religion to, to fight each other, but eventually the Moros and the Christian realized that it was manipulation. As, uh, as a Mara now, you grow up memorizing epics. There's no television, there's no radio. In the afternoon, you have to pray the sundown prayer properly. And after that, you go around the bonfire to listen to storytellers. So all the epics, the Darangan and all the legends of the sun and the moon is being chanted in Bayok form or in Darangan form. And in fact, that is what I carried here in New York in my, in my cultural work. And along the way, because our land, the land grabbing, all of the sudden, somebody has measured your land and is titled already in somebody's name. And uh, the burning of the villages and the killing and the massacres of the farmers, you will see the evacuations. And you will see how the, the Moro farmers or the indigenous farmers are being killed and, and displayed in front of the plug hole of the municipal hall and then tell them that these people are rebels they fight. The truth is they just want to have the land taken and give it to big uh, multinational companies for the, for the corporate farming, corporate uh, agriculture. Then these displaced people, people will go to the city. For the Maranaos, we are merchants, so we build our, our stores wherever. And uh, the people who are displaced in the, from the agriculture area become squatters in the city or become beggars. And those who can't afford to go to school become a nurse and then become an export, just like the banana and the pineapple. And during that period, we do a lot of cultural work around the areas that whose lands were taken to help the farmers, to help the people understand that we cannot just leave the land by itself. We have to analyze what is really going on and how we're gonna work and, and how we're gonna work this way to struggle it. So if you notice, there are several resistant movements that appeared during martial law or even before martial law. There was the Moro National Liberation Front and, and all this resistant movement that is actually standing to protect the land. Personally, we Maranaos have accent. 
I have to erase that accent because there is this group called Taddad or Ilaga. It's paramilitary that if they know you're a Muslim, they're going to chop you down. Or if they know you're an activist, they're going to chop you down with their very sharp bolo. These are fanatics. They bring a particular icon in their pocket and also uh, lana or oil. And they said, if it's boiling, you are antichrist. So you are Muslim, you're antichrist, so you have to be killed. So I have to change my name again and again. During the time, you have to buy a, a resident certificate for 75 cents. So I have several of that with different names that doesn't sound Mara now. Eventually, I was arrested when I was at school. And like looking at this paper, you will see what are the questions that has to be written in order for, for us to be re given that reparation money from Marcos and also to, to press that Marcos was really guilty in all the things that they have done to us. So uh, the dates of torture, the place of torture, I have all the copies of what has been done to me. When I was filling in this, I have to break down several times uh, wailing because it reminded me all the inhuman treatment that was done to me. In fact, uh, it's supposed to be a child abuse because I was 13. So I was able to go to school when I was in prison because I was, uh, I, I keep on writing, writing uh, the generals that I am a, I'm a child, so Please let me go back to school so I'll be rehabilitated. I have to go to school with guard. The, the worst torture I ever had that reminds me 24-7 is when this uh, man asked me, because I have to be blindfolded for two weeks, and there are four of us. They transfer us from one place to another, and it is the so-called safe house. And then they open the they open the blindfold and ask, do you know this person? Do you know this person in the picture? Or can you point where the guns are hidden? So there's a place called Darong. This is a place of, of Muslim uh, fishermen. They ask me where are the guns hidden by the Muslims and all this. I said, I don't know. I have all the names that I listed in this paper. And he hit me with the with the with the handle of the 45 caliber on my right shoulder my right shoulder um was fractured it it uh it's well it became so swollen it became so big that no medical attention was given to me i just have to hold my my right arm with my left arm so that it will not fall so and then they put us in Fort Rivers Philippine Constabulary Company Detention Center and my fracture just healed by itself because I was a child. We have the so-called green, green stick fracture. So that is painful, very, very painful 24 seven, especially I'm growing my old age. It's arthritic already because it did not heal properly. Um, it's just my, 
positive mental health, mental hygiene that carries me because all those tortures that I have undergone really taught me a lot how to become a positive person. And being a cultural worker, being an artist, I carry all this in my production. And also, it's not only my story, but the story that is ignored and ignored and systematically denied from the world. Like, for example, the massacre of the Mapalimbang massacre, when the Sultan was called by Marcos to surrender in Malacanang as soon as he was carried by a helicopter. All the people in the mosque who are celebrating Eid were massacred, were killed. And you will see that in one of my production. Being an artist, I'm able to carry that positively, that I'm able to tell that story to the world and at the same time raise the consciousness that there is such kind of a story that is not a fiction. This is very true. Very, very true, and it is really happening right now. The money that I got from Marcos, did you see that? My 2017 money from Marcos, which is like $4,500. I was so happy, I am going to buy a new computer. But May 23, 2017, martial law was declared. Marawi was seized. So I have no more money from the hands of a dictator to the victims of the new martial law in Mindanao. So the question is, what are we going to do? As a people, are we going to allow this forever? Are we going to let foreign investors, are we le letting the foreign policy control our lives as a people? Are we going to let go of our paradise? It's not anymore the Spaniards. It's not anymore the American occupation that went there and took our land. It's our own people who allowed ourselves, who allowed themselves to oppress us, to become instruments of oppression, just like what's going on. And uh, this is the happy part of poetry. I continued being a nurse. As I said, I'm an export, but I am an A1, A1, A1 nurse. Ask me whatever you want as a nurse. I am going to present to you and I'll take care of you. And now I'm actually in med a medical epidemiologist for COVID, but I take care of the sick because I see myself in them. And, and, I, and also, I always carry the art with me. I sing to my patient and also using art as an organizing tool. When our land was being taken from us, it's not just taking, it's killing the owner because we resist not to allow our land to be taken. So how are you going to make a farmer who's who's very desperate because he cannot plant anymore his own seeds because there was a time during Masagana 99 that you are required to buy seeds by the Marcos Project Masagana 99. And if you're not going to buy, then you'll be in prison. You not, cannot even keep your own seeds. What kind of a life is that in a very rich agricultural country that is, that is 
that has a very fertile soil. Even the seeds of the papaya, the seeds of rice. That's why our rice is not anymore produced by the Filipinos. My prison, my political prison story is just one, one of the stories. I dare to speak today. I usually do not want to speak because I don't want to revisit that post-traumatic syndrome because, you know, PTSD is coming back too much so as I'm growing older. Taking care of a patient, of a COVID patient, I keep myself underwater waiting to exhale because I'm telling myself, care for the patient, be scientific, emotions later. So, so that's how wounded, that, that, that is the wound of martial law. And how many people more are wounded and to be wounded again and again. Now, this is a sy systemic um, disease, but uh, hopefully you will see how much suffering people are undergoing right now in the Philippines with the present dictatorship with the present uh, system that um, what, is, what is dangerous is now it's the unmanned planes who, who bombs. I came from that place of storytelling. I have to stay for seven days and seven nights. Thank you very much. <laughs> Of course, we, we'd love to listen to all of your stories for seven days and seven nights. But again, thank you, Tita Poetry, for your powerful testimony, um, for your strength um, in, in sharing with us in the face of Marco's historical revisionism and their denials of history. Thank you also for bringing up the parallels between Marcos and Duterte and their plunder of Mindanao um, in selling out, you know, the, the land of the indigenous communities of the Moro communities um, and their objective to sell out to corporate interests and how this is very much tied with both of their martial laws. I would like to present that we will be doing a cultural presentation from Michael Dadup, a guitarist, composer, conductor, and advocate for Filipino um, folk music. Um, he was very influential in the creation of a world-class Mancala ensemble in the U.S. and is the founding director of the Escuelahang Randala of Boston. I'd like for us to do this cultural presentation. Oh, 
I believe you're on, Michael. If you'd like to share a few words um, about how this piece came to be. Thank you so much for um, giving me the honor to share the song that I had written and the first uh, Quartet Storm in, when I was in the Philippines. There's a lot of stories in there. At, actually, during the uh, beginnings of the martial law in the, late, in the 60s, late 60s, I was 
just a music teacher and a guitarist and with a lot of friends from UP who were involved in the movement. And so I was very much uh, moved by uh, their sentiments and their passion for our, for our country. And the stories that I have heard are so incredibly um, uh, clear. It brought me back in the 60s where I was in Manila, uh, witnessing all these uh, turbulent times. Now, for myself, uh, this song was actually a part of a sarsuela that I was asked to, uh, to write about the state of our country. This was initiated by some of my friends who were my students also in St. Scholastica College. Uh, I was teaching guitar. And the, uh, among them is Man Ontiveros. And so they asked me to write about the country. So I wrote the song as the opening number, asking the country, bayan di mo ba nakikita ang taong bayan nagdurusa? And, and so on. And then, bayan di ka ba naawa, katarungan mo'y kinukutya? Bayan di ka ba nangangamba, kalayaan mo'y nakataya? And that is in a recitative form, so it's more powerful. And in the second part, I um, adapted a kundiman form, which is very lyrical. Uh, pleading and extolling the beautiful country that we have. That is the land of our heroes and it's been been uh, cradled and nurtured and fertilized with the blood of our heroes who possess the vision and wisdom. And why are we not doing our duty that we should let justice prevail? And so that, that was the trust of that song. Being a Bisaya, I had no way of expressing it this way. Uh, so I wrote it in Bisaya, and one of my students, uh, Francisco Bailon, uh, a seminarian, uh, was Tagalog. He understood Bisaya, and so we put it together. And it was later on that Mang Levi, the national artist Levi Silario, helped me uh, polish the lyrics that it sounds so flowing, and now it's like almost like a, a real, uh, a real. Uh, Poem, you know, <laughs> so uh, and then it became very popular in the Philippines, but but then it never was shown there because we were uh, scared. We heard that the uh, the authorities or the NBI, I think at the time, were going to uh, raid the students, and so we sort of uh, this was supposed to be the Kabataan Makabayan under uh, Manglapus at the time, so we dispersed. And then I hit the script and only two songs survived, this one and, and March. The rest, I don't know where they are now. And I hid this manuscript in my music book. And I was, as I was leaving to New York to study at my school of music, um, I wrote it in red ink, put it in my, uh, one of my books and wrote it with a pen name. Because I was scared that if my name would be called, I will be sent to prison. So when I arrived in New York, it was picked up by my friends here. And among them was the one I get associated with Luis, Nelson Alvaro, uh, Rev, and uh, Sunny late Sunny Alvarez. And then later on, uh, the, all the demonstrations in front of the, and, and of course, Loida and Nicholas, and in front of uh, the embassy. And when, when the people heard the song, they loved it. They sing it, and it is now their song. So this is now the people's song. So this, uh, and this song became our rallying cry for the people 
in New York who were demonstrating against the Marcos regime. Because as an artist, my role was not really to stay in front on the front lines, but I was behind the spirit of those who were more heroic and brave than I was. So this is my contribution. And this, is, uh, this brings back a lot of memories about the Philippine martial law. And also it brings me to the present that right now happening in this country, we are witnessing people suffering. We are witnessing our rights are being tampered. And we are witnessing that our freedom may be at stake. So we have to wake up. We have to use our common sense and intelligence to choose the right leader who will lead us towards peace, towards unity, and towards decency. And we cannot let America down and we cannot let the Philippines down because we are here whether we like it or not. We are a part of a movement for the entire world, not just the Philippines, but the entire world. But to start here has a lot of leverage because the power begins here. And I am so scared right now, to be honest, that a lot of us are suffering, not just from the pandemic, but from systemic racism from everything else. And also a lot of, there's no justice, and next, our freedom. So I feel that this song is still relevant until now, even if I had written it something like 40 years ago. I felt your song in my heart is so beautiful. And also hearing these, these stories again of Filipino activists here in the U.S. Um, fighting against the Marcos regime. Hearing also about your work in the Philippines, it's so inspiring. I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Angela or Jing Mascarenas, um, co-founder of Circa um, Pinting, a martial law cultural activist with the Philippine Educational Theater Association, or PETA. Jing is a proud new grandmother of Diwa Uju, which means essence um, or spirit of the world. Jing is a co-founder of the Chicago-based community theater Circa Pinting that will be celebrating its 30th anniversary um, next year. She has been a cultural activist since her teenage years in the Philippines as a member of PETA or the Philippine Educational Theater Association. Um, she continues her cultural work through um, Circa Pintig, um, conducting community research, um, dramatic educational workshops, mobilizing and organizing around pressing issues confronted by marginal segments of immigrant communities, um, primarily of the um, Filipinex, Filipina, Filipino, Filipino Americans here in the U.S. I am also a storyteller, so I will just speak from my experiences. I'm part of a generation that's considered the Marcus baby generation, because for as long as I remember, it's been Marcus uh, since I was a young child until the very time that he was deposed. Um, it was Marcus uh, who was the head of the country. Um, so like poetry also, I did not enjoy uh, much of a childhood, but I 
because of the repression and because of the the abnormal situation that the country was in. However, I was very, very fortunate. And I think I was very, very privileged because um, I was spared from all of those um, um, torture. Um, the closest to physical harm that I experienced was um, being in a rally in Liwasang Bonifacio and we were uh, very young then and we were attacked with truncheons. And so all I needed to do was duck and then run as fast as I could, but they ran after us. And so I had to, there were jeepneys that were passing by and I had to just hang on to the jeepney so that um, I could be free or I would not be hurt by uh, the attacks of the police at that time. So um, fast forward to like several months later, um, Benigno Aquino Sr. was assassinated and um, my father who has been here since the 70s uh, sent us an ultimatum saying that um, we, it's not safe to be in the Philippines anymore and that we should make a decision whether we would come and join him here in the US or um, he cannot guarantee our safety anymore. Um, so the whole family migrated because he's been here by himself alone since the 70s. And so we decided as a family uh, to come together. So mind you, my experience as, as, uh, as a kid in the Philippines um, was marked by having to go through curfews and um, going through checkpoints going from the house to school and back. Um, and we were made to feel afraid. Um, so th the safest space for me to be able to enjoy what it was like to play was to be in a play. Uh, so I joined the teen theater workshop in the mid-70s at the Philippine Educational Theater Association, and I became uh, a member of the Teen Theater League at that time. And then um, my sort of politicization and conscientization came from an exposure trip to the slum areas in the Philippines, primarily in Tondo, where we were collecting stories. So again, um, the materials that we were putting together for our performances were based on real life stories. Uh, so I grew up in that tradition of collecting stories and telling stories. Um, and so uh, what we would do during mass mobilizations is that since it was not safe to show your face during performances, we would join all of the people who were gathered uh, in mass uh, chanting. Uh, and when it's time to do our performances, we would be in the crowd. We would put a 
a hood over our face, a white shirt over our face, would go to the stage where the performances would be held. We did our street performances. And then after the street performance, uh, the, the MC would ask everybody to stand up and rise and we would do the singing and the chanting and all of the performers would rush back to where the crowds were, remove our masks and then become part of the mobilization. So it was not safe to, to, to divulge your identity. So fast forward, when we came to the US, and this was in 83 in October, and uh, uh, the, the late uh, Aquino senior was um, assassinated in or gunned down in uh, August of 83, and we came here in October. So the first thing I did was to look for a community center. And at that time, at the community center in Chicago, it was called Rizal Center. The first community event I attended uh, was a fashion show of a Miss Philippines, uh, Mrs. Philippines, Miss Luzon, Mrs. Luzon besides. And that was a cultural shock for me because I came from the Philippines and my experience was totally different. And here you are, people didn't have a sense of life and death threats or a sense of urgency about what was going on in the Philippines. So I was totally disoriented at the time and really saddened uh, by the reality in Chicago at that time. And so I, uh, fortunately, I met some Filipinos at the time who were a part of KDP and uh, Samapi. And then uh, they, uh, we had conversations and getting to know each other and and the Philippine Forum was born and we started, um, I along with other students at the time who I met at the University of Illinois, uh, Chicago, um, started forming the youth arm of the of Philippine Forum. But then our main forum of uh, a contribution to um, to the work of Philippine Farm was through performances, uh, street performances. And so at some point we decided that um, we weren't just gonna be like an entertainment part of any mass mobilization because very often we were just asked to do, to sing a song, to do a number, even the, and the main form of conversation at the time was through, not even a conversation, but it was a public forum where there was a speaker and then the people were listening and they were seated and listening. And then they only got to interact after the presentations. And in between just to break the, the cadence or the rhythm of that forum was we would be asked to perform a, a song or a uh, we do a mini improvisation uh, about the US basis, but we would sing militant songs. Not that there was anything wrong with that, but we knew that we had a distinct role to use culture as a site for resistance. 
And that's when we decided uh, to break ranks from Philippine Forum, not in any antagonistic way, but to say that we will form a cultural organization so that we could really focus on cultural work. So we started out in the, in the late 80s uh, to do street performances. Um, and then um, we decided that um, we needed to, to penetrate the mainstream uh, so that we could bring our work to a much larger group. And that's when, in 1991, we incorporated as a nonprofit 501c3 organization as a painting cultural group. And our first production was Americas in the Heart. So, and the rest is history. So if you, we really started out as a, an activist cultural organization uh, in the late 80s, in 1986, but as a nonprofit organization in 1991. And we will be celebrating, if we start from 1991, celebrate our 30th anniversary next year. And, uh, and the reason I chose this picture, not only because I am a very proud new grandmother of Diwa Uju, but it also speaks about the work of Circa Pintig, which has become a really intergenerational safe space uh, for Filipinos across all generations um, to get together, to continue their tradition of storytelling, and to continue the tradition of using our stories as a way to talk about our communities, as a way to strengthen our identities, and also as a way to interrogate issues of the day, issues that are not being discussed even within our communities. And if you look at all of the productions of Circa Pintig through the years, first of all, their original works, they were written by community members and guests from the Philippines, such as Chris Miliado or Rodi Vera, who are cultural activists in the Philippines, who have helped also strengthen the bonds globally between our work in Chicago and in the Midwest. And now that I'm in New York, I'm back and forth in New York, and I've uh, connected with uh, other folks from PETA uh, in the group uh, called the Manila Collective. And so we're continuing this tradition again, um, not only in Chicago, but also uh, here uh, in New York. Based on our experience, we're really very, very much encouraged and inspired by the work of all of the people who have done this work uh, in the past. And we feel that our, our work is just a continuation of what has been done in the past. And that's uh, where we are. And we feel that our primary role as cultural workers uh, is really not to change people's minds 
we feel that that's up to the individuals to make that decision for themselves about where they stand on issues. But our role really in our cultural activist work is to carve out a safe space where we can really interrogate and think critically through all of these issues in all of their nuances, in all of their aspects, and how each of us can connect to each of these issues. And so what we do is that for us, the measure of our success of our productions is that when our audiences leave the performance space disturbed, leave the performance thinking deeply about what they saw and reflecting back on why what they saw really disturbed them. And then we leave it up to them to decide what they're gonna do. So again, the mantra in Circapintic is practice, practice, practice. We believe that our work, our works in progress and that we must continue to practice. We start the practice of whatever, whatever it is, whether the practice of storytelling, whether it's the practice of talking to someone about, especially someone who doesn't share uh, your position on an issue, but to engage them in conversation. And we start from home. We start from where we feel most comfortable with. We start with people who we care about the most and who may not necessarily share the same beliefs and the same political stances that we have. But the key is for us to keep the conversation going. And so um, this is kind of like um, the main um, message, I guess, that I would like to part with is that we must continue to broaden that safe space for that conversation because nothing is gonna change unless we engage people in real hard conversations about real hard topics that really involve people's lives. Again, maraming maraming salamat for allowing me to share our experiences and for sharing this moment with all of us. Thank you, Angela, for your words. Yeah, the cultural aspect is incredibly important to the mission, especially when it comes to the retention of members, right? The essays help change the minds, but the poetry, the songs, the movies, the pieces of art, that's how you change people's hearts. 
we draw so much inspiration um, from the historical legacy of, of everyone who shared here today, um, fighting against the Marcos dictatorship, um, of how um, you know, the people power uprising was able to oust Marcos and that as the Filipino people, um, you know, for those in the Philippines and of course here in the US and around the world, we will topple the dictatorship of Duterte. We will topple another dictator again. Um, and this is you know, within our power. And it's so important as all the various organizations that everyone was part of and, and took a role in building the people's movement um, is really how you know, we build people power. So, of course, as the Malaya Movement Northeast, I invite everyone, um, if you want to check out Malaya, everyone is welcome. And as we like to say, everyone has a role in the movement. 